I got my early start doing strategy consulting with a company called Monitor, which is now part of Deloitte, sort of the classic strategy consulting firm. And it was phenomenal training for a a kid who had come out of a political science degree uh, from the University of British Columbia, Vancouver, where I grew up. Uh, It was amazing business training and like a, a great growth opportunity for me, but also helped me realize pretty early in my career that I wasn't interested in just advising people. Uh, I wanted to do stuff and have accountability for implementing uh, the plans that I was responsible for devising as well. Hey there, and welcome to The Stackbot. This is the podcast where we talk about all things related to observability, because that's what we do and that's what we're passionate about, but also what it's like to work in a tech company. So if you are interested in that, you are definitely in the right place. So the next guest of this show is quite the special guest. He recently joined StackState as the Chief Executive Officer, and his name is Toffer Winslow. Anthony and Toffer will talk about how Toffer started his career and how he became a CEO and why he joined StackState, which is, of course, something we are very curious about. So without further ado, let's get started. Thanks for uh, thanks for coming on and and thanks for doing this. I know you're a, you're a very busy uh, man, but again, thank you for taking the time to to come on and and uh, giving us the opportunity to get to know you, your journey, a uh, little bit about yourself, a little bit about you know why Stack State, a little bit around you know some of the things you're doing in and out of work, uh, and let's just let's just get to know each other and see what we can uh, uh, do from there. Um, so great. obviously. Toffer, you're the CEO of Stack States. Um, do you want to give yourself a little uh, introduction? For sure, yeah. Um, so I'll start with a little background about uh, about me, sort of where I where I come from, and uh, maybe sort of segue into how I got to Stack State, and um, talk a little bit about the opportunity I see in front of us. Uh, so I uh, I've been doing enterprise software in various forms for probably the better part of 25 years. I, I hate to say now. Uh, I got my early start doing strategy consulting uh, uh, with a company called Monitor, uh, which is now part of Deloitte, sort of the classic strategy uh, consulting firm. Uh, and it was phenomenal training for uh, you know, a kid who had come out of a, a political science degree uh, from the University of British Columbia, uh, Vancouver, where I grew up. Uh, it was amazing business training um, and um, like a, a great growth opportunity for me, but also helped me realize pretty early in my career that I wasn't interested in just advising people. Uh, I wanted to do stuff and have accountability for you know, implementing uh, the plans that I was responsible for devising as well. So yeah, that pretty quickly led me to uh, an operating career. Um, you know, this was the mid to late 90s, sort of the uh, early days of the internet boom. And I went and uh, joined uh, uh, an early, early startup. I think I was employee number seven for a company that was making Java-based rapid application development tools. Um, yeah, we were on stage with uh, Scott McNeely and Ed Zander, you know, the uh, executives at uh, Sun, Sun Microsystems when they announced Java to the world. And we were one of their showcase companies that were doing cool advanced things. Uh, we had built a, a scripting language uh, that uh, if we had figured out how to do the licensing deal that Sun was trying to do with us, it would have probably become JavaScript um, and used broadly today. Uh, but instead, it's now a defunct proprietary language. Uh, but yeah, we were doing all the things you needed to do to transform 
a um, uh, a browser into a, a front end for a um, uh, an end tiered application. Uh, so it was cool cool stuff back in the day, but a bit of ahead of its time. Uh, that startup uh, uh, started to started to crater, um, and I uh, left for business school. Uh, I went to went to Harvard. Uh, I met my wife there in in my section, um, and um, I've uh, been living in Boston for. Uh, you know, gosh, since uh, 1996, so uh, 25 years now uh, here, um, and all the while uh, doing various forms of enterprise software jobs. Originally, sort of on the product management, product marketing side, uh, and then oh, as my career developed, took on more and more of uh, the the whole marketing function. Then marketing plus BD plus sales, and then most recently, uh, including those things plus sort of a, a strategy and overall operations uh, kind of role. So. Uh, Stack State is my first CEO job, um, and uh, and and I'm psyched to be here. That's great. Um, I, I do have a question. So, so you, you left school. You had uh, political science. You then went into contract or consulting, uh, right? And then and then you 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 you'd made it almost into the the tech industry, right? Working with a startup. You're already in the industry. What what made you decide that you needed to go back to school? Uh, and of all schools, it's a great school. Don't get me wrong, Harvard. But what what made you decide to to take that as a step as opposed to just using what you'd already learned and kind of propelling off of that? Yeah, you you know the old joke about how to tell if somebody went to Harvard Business School. They tell you in the first five minutes of meeting you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I try not to be that guy. Um, uh, let's see. Um, yeah, I went, I went back to business school, um, in part because, uh, I wanted to, um, sort of have a, a broader, uh, tool set, uh, to try and build companies with, right. The political science degree I did was, uh, was, was, uh, great, I guess, in, in some regards, but wasn't particularly practical. That first startup taste that I had, uh, sort of working as a, both a, a you know, someone responsible for strategy, but also for, uh, operations and execution, um, in the tech world, gave me a great taste of um, uh, of, of what this life was going to be like, uh, and made me realize that's where I wanted to be long term. But it also made me realize that I had a, a bunch of learning to do that maybe I could acquire on the job. Uh, but I thought the more efficient way to go get that um, uh, was uh, was was through a degree, um, and um, you know do it through a, a degree at a place that had a fair bit of um, uh, you know, practice in uh, in delivering uh, sort of a, a really strong educational experience, and also had a, a great brand with it. Plus, I was in Boston at the time, and um, yeah, seemed like seemed like the place to stay. I love this city. Well, well, you met your uh, wife there, so you know who 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 knows what would have happened, you know, if if you hadn't have uh, taken that leap. I mean, uh, one of the one of the things I find with uh, a lot of people in tech, right, um, is that they they get they get into the uh, operational side, uh, and the problem with the operational side of tech is that it that's where you get a lot of the. Uh, uh, just the hard graft and the hard work, you know, you got to usually with technology, you know, you sell your customer something that maybe is in beta or alpha at the time you sell it. And then ideally you get two or three customers who help, you know, drive the the revenue who then also drive the R&D to a certain extent, as well as the operational side. So I find a lot of people who uh, start out on the execution side end up staying there just simply because of the amount of uh, work that there always is, right? There, there's always uh, a demand for somebody to stay 
to sit behind a keyboard and to just deliver whatever it is, whether it's a deliverable, whether it's code, whether it's whatever. But it, it, it's 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 uh, I think healthy in some respects to identify that you want to be in tech, but then that you know you don't necessarily want to do what you were doing, and in order to expand from what you were doing, you probably needed that broader skill set, right, so that you could have. Uh, more of a more of an impact is that an accurate kind of summation around some of the the mindset and the thought process there yeah that's a, that's a, that's a good description of it like i think the things that that, that i'm good at is integrating um yeah information um uh, from a bunch of different disciplines so you know having a like sort of real operational experience you know building a, a demand generation organization a, a full marketing organization Doing a bunch of biz dev deals, uh, running a sales organization, selling, uh, you know, carrying carrying a bag myself, um, you know, doing fundraising, having that sort of breadth of experience, and then being able to sort of put it all together in a single role is something that um, uh, is sort of I, I think one of my uh, one of the things that I'm good at, and also one of the things that I really really like sort of get, gets me going, um, figuring out how to combine uh, you know different disciplines uh, in the in the pursuit of trying to build something cool. Yeah, yeah, and that's 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 also the reason why I love working at startups, right? I I feel like uh, I've been ruined in terms of uh, I wouldn't be able to just take a role where I'm just doing pre-sales or I'm just doing uh, support or you know uh, customer success, whatever it may be. Um, I like to kind of do uh, a variety of things, and that's what drives me to companies like Stack State, right? Because you have the opportunity to kind of drive you know, the, the company as opposed to just driving your own agenda or your own career. So, um, but having yeah, said like that, I totally, totally agree with you. I think that's been one of the yeah. things uh, that I've sort of observed with you at Stacks8 uh, that is a huge asset for us is sort of your both ability and willingness to go pick up whatever needs to be done, whether it's, you know, coming up with, you know, interesting new uh, marketing opportunities that we can pursue, uh, you know, build, helping build a program that uh, lets us tap into the voice of the customer, driving a bunch of work with a key partner uh, in AWS and getting us listed in the marketplace, uh, or doing you know what people would consider sort of the traditional sales engineer job of uh, doing demos and understanding customers' requirements and you know getting them through uh, through POCs. Uh, I think that you know the, the breadth of what you've been doing here has been super helpful. Uh, it's 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 fun. Uh, I I I actually enjoy it. Uh, you know, I'm I'm. I, I really can't stand people that have like a mentality or an attitude where it's like, that's not my job, like, like that's somebody else or, or we don't have a marketing team, so we don't have marketing. Well, that's, that's not really a helpful attitude, especially when you're trying to, trying to pivot and especially when there's a dependency on maybe singular individuals for a whole department in some cases, right? Because then if that person quits, then you lose everything. So, you know, by building almost like a, I wouldn't say it's communist, but building out like a socialist level of responsibility where it's like, hey, just because you don't have a marketing title doesn't mean that you don't contribute to marketing. Or just because you don't have a sales title doesn't mean that you don't contribute to sales. Because at the end of the day, if any of those functions don't work, then you're at a stage where the whole company won't work. And so that's, that's where uh, one of the things I've had to learn is to be uh, less 
Um, and, and this isn't from Stack State. This is just in my career in general, is that you, you kind of morph from the young person who knows everything and is always right and is always pushing what they want, which, you know, you look at yourself for like after five years of doing that and you're like, why don't people listen to me? And it's because you're the irritating youngster who thinks he knows it all. Uh, and so going more into my 30s, where it's like now, okay, I can contribute things. I've got enough self-assurance that, you know, what I'm providing is going to help in some way, shape or form. But, you know, let, let me kind of do it in a more politically correct way, you know, allowing people to, to take the lead and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, that's where I've really been trying to mold myself in terms of where I can fit as opposed to just being somebody who, who drives everything. Because you can get too busy uh, as well when, when things do start to kick off and the business does start to become uh, successful. For sure. Like, I think that's one of like, uh, you, you touched on it a minute ago, like one of the, one of the things that I think can make or break a startup is whether there's enough people who have that mentality that, look, I see a problem and uh, I'm, I'm going to go solve it because nobody else looks like they're solving it right now. So uh, that that's one of the things that is is great about being a little company and allows, you know, uh, companies like Stackstate with 50 employees to outcompete uh, bigger organizations with 500 or 5,000 or 50,000 employees uh, because you have that sort of agility and willingness to just sort of do what it takes to solve a problem, even if it wasn't in the job description that you signed up for when you, uh, when you started six years ago, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. So speaking of that, why on earth did you decide on Stack State and, and what made you join this uh, ragtag group of uh, observability uh, people? <laughs> Uh, it's um, it, it, it's a good question. Um, when I first got the call from a recruiter about Stackstate, um, my initial reaction was, "Gosh, this this feels like an awfully crowded market." You know, it's one that I knew uh, reasonably well, although my knowledge was starting to getting a little little dated uh, from my days uh, as the uh, early CMO at uh, Dynatrace. Uh, I joined them when they were a uh, you know, a, a small Austrian company that had just taken on some institutional money and uh, put out a shingle in the U.S. Um, so, you know, similar in size and scale in many ways to where Stack State is today. Um, but the thing that got me super excited about joining Dynatrace, you know, 10, 12 years ago was this core technical innovation that I saw. Uh, for them, it was dynamic bytecode instrumentation. Uh, and, uh, you know, that innovation had been harnessed in a software platform that was delivering what customers who were building at the time were sort of, you know, cutting edge, end-tier, you know, microservice-based applications. You know, they needed to see how every unit of work was traversing uh, the, the whole application infrastructure in order to figure out where, when problems were popping up, what was the underlying cause. Yeah, that was a, that was a big innovation at the time, and to be able to do that in a low perform, low overhead way, so that you weren't degrading the performance of the application you were supposedly um, uh, monitor, monitoring and optimizing, uh, was a big deal. Instead, and, and Dynatrace had done that, and I, I, it was clear to me uh, when I when I figured that out that this was a, a company that had huge growth potential. When I got to really learn what was under the cover at Stack States, I saw a similar. Uh, technical uh, innovation uh, that maps really well to the way customers are building and deploying applications today. You know, the core innovation here uh, is our you know, time traveling topology approach 
uh, which is powered under the covers by this versioned graph database that the company's created. And that ability to allow you to see what a uh, t application topology looks like over time, not just at a point in time, but historically, um, is the is the big uh, innovation needed to help people who are deploying these really dynamic, complex cloud-based applications succeed. You know, there are so many uh, you know services uh, that are getting spun up and down, and you know, containers that have a, a half-life of me measured in minutes sometimes. That unless you can understand how what the dependencies and relationships are between all these components that make up your cloud environment, uh, and then uh, you know, see how those are changing over time and then use that view of the change in order to uh, understand what the root cause of performance problems are, uh, you're toast. Uh, and that's what that's what StackState uniquely does. You know, there's plenty of other folks out there who will give you a view of your topology, maybe even a, a near real-time view of that topology, but the ability to time travel uh, across, across your topology and to see how changes that happened 10 minutes ago or a day ago trickle into performance problems as they impact downstream components. That's the magic uh, here at StackState. And uh, well, you know, what I see is the big innovation upon which we can build a company that is um, you know, Dynatrace-like in scale today, uh, a clear leader in a, in a, in a big market. That, and that's what those are the stakes we're playing for. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, when, I, when I was, uh, so my previous company, they were obviously in the AI ops space and uh, they, they, they didn't know whether to focus on AI ops or to continue focusing on the AI service management, which is like the chatbot side and how to automate the help desk. Um, for me, that's, that's, that's not a very big industry because, you know, a help desk internally maybe costs you anywhere between a hundred to 150 grand. And you mean, that means that if I invest in an AI tool, even if it takes over a hundred percent of those calls, the value is only 150 grand, you know, that's it. That, that's all you bring to the table. Whereas, um, with AI ops, you're, you're dealing with, you know, the, the, the back end of the issue, the, the root of the reason why people would be calling that help desk or people would be calling that customer service desk. And that's usually for, you know, the availability or the lack of availability of say, you know, a website, an application or a service and, and whatnot. So, so for me, AI ops was the more lucrative market, but, but, you know, it's incredibly uh, to your point, right. It's incredibly busy that everybody says, they're an AI ops tool. Everybody says now that they're an observability tool. You go to you go to Splunk, you go to Datadog, you go to Dynatrace, you'll see the words observability and AI ops and all these other buzzwords um, uh, on their screens uh, as they you know market those products. What what would you say is it, why why do we provide observability better? You know when it aligns to that time travel that you were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the you know having this uh, you know this technical innovation at our core, this version graph database, and using that to see how the dependencies between components change over time, I really think of that as like a prism by which other telemetry data can be viewed, right? Telemetry data at some level is kind of a commodity. You know, people, there's lots of ways of doing tracing and a lot of ways of gathering logs and metrics. And sure, there's some complicated challenges around making that all searchable and, and useful, but you know, the data itself is kind of a kind of a commodity. 
the innovation of being able to apply topology and changing topology is the prism through which all that telemetry data is filtered uh, over time uh, is and the, uh, that's an important organizing paradigm uh, that gives you this unique visibility into uh, what ultimately the the root causes of performance problems are and even now uh, the ability to sort of uh, find anomalies before they become performance problems to surface those to uh, the people who are accountable for managing those environments and to allowing them to uh, troubleshoot them before they impact service quality and become visible to, to, to end users. That, that I think is a, a, a super, super important um, uh, set of capabilities and it's only possible when you've got this time series based view of topology. Yeah, I think um, I think I think this has become incredibly important now that we're dealing with more containerized uh, technologies, right? If you think about ten to twelve years ago, to your point around Dynatrace, right, the main problem you were solving was observability for physical and virtual infrastructure uh, without a high overhead in terms of performance impact, right? So, so getting, getting that data real time so that I can see application throughput, I can see, you know, where everything is communicating and to, and to what end. Uh, and, and that, that works very well. You can have a real time view. You don't really need to worry about time travel at that point because that there isn't so much change going on within the actual resources being used. Okay, maybe a service will run and whatever, but it's operating systems at the end of the day. Um, I find now with the uh, containerized technologies that uh, a lot of these, uh, let's call them legacy ways of doing application performance management, really don't cater for the fact that the rate of change happens so frequently within a Kubernetes environment. You know, you could say that, hey, I've got a real-time view, but who's to say that container X that gets spun up at, you know, 909, gets spun down at 910, but then had a downstream impact in that it may be, you know, obliterated an S3 bucket or, you know, did something, you know, anywhere else within the, the environment. You, you won't be able to see that very clearly. Um, and, and I think, you know, the way in which a lot of our prospects and our customers do it today without stack state is that they have to go through tons of logs in order to actually just get that view that, hey, this thing happens. That's the last thing that touched the bucket. The bucket is the reason why everything's dead. But then we need to figure out why the container, you know, did that in the first place. Uh, and without that time traveling topology, you really don't have that ability to see the play-by-play -play, uh, that, that, that you get with stack state. Yeah, no, well, well, well said. Um, what, what, what would you say to people who are listening to us about our technology? What would you say would be a great call to action uh, around how you can get involved with stack state and start seeing this uh, time traveling topology uh, in action? For sure. Well, I think one of the uh, initiatives that we're just bringing to market uh, is launching a playground version of, uh, of Stack State, so that for anybody, um, you you can uh, you know come into a Stack State environment, see see uh, the uh, sort of central dashboards and user interface that have been already set up and are monitoring uh, you know a, a demo application. Uh, but we will provide a guided tour through how do you stack state to identify the root cause of performance problems, uh, how to use automatic anomaly detection so that uh, you can uh, prevent problems from uh, impacting service level uh, objectives, 
um, and really just sort of, uh, you know, really get a, a quick and easy taste of what the product's capable of doing. Uh, it's a great way for site reliability engineers to have that first initial experience uh, and real hands-on uh, experience with the, with the product and what it can do. Of course, you know, we'll have, um, you know, solution experts uh, available along the way to help anybody with whatever uh, questions or issues that they've got. Uh, but really being automate, really being able to automate that entire experience from you know first uh, touch of a prospect on the uh, on the product all the way through fulfillment and initial deployment um, is the model that we are heading towards. Um, and part of, a key part of that is being able to fulfill uh, demand for Stack State through the AWS marketplace. That's been a, an initiative that uh, I've been really keen on, and uh, you've been instrumental in uh, in, in making happen uh, over the last couple of months. Um, so, so let's we, we've talked a lot about Stack State. Now we spent you know about twenty minutes or so talking about you know why Stack State, what we're doing, and whatnot. Um, you know, you mentioned you're up in Boston outside of work. What what do you uh, what do you enjoy doing? What does uh, uh, what do you and the family uh, like to do in your spare time? Yeah, I mean, I'm a, I'm a family guy first, right? So I, I, I married my section mate from business school. Um, uh, more, you know, just we had our 20th anniversary last November. Uh, we've got two kids uh, who are increasingly grown up. Uh, we just shipped my daughter off to college uh, a week ago. Um, and uh, are sort of uh, uh, missing her presence around the home, but uh, you know it's all all part of uh, the parents' job getting kids ready for those kind of experiences. Uh, in addition to my eighteen-year-old uh, daughter, I have an almost sixteen-year-old son, um, and uh, you know we love doing stuff together as a family. Uh, typically, sort of active family vacations are uh, uh, something we love to do. We've done a handful of uh, cycling trips. Um, hiking trips together. Uh, this this June, just before I started at Stack State, we all went to Moab and spent a week hiking in the uh, national parks there and paddling on the Colorado River. So, um, active stuff is uh, is is key for me. Uh, when I'm not doing stuff with my family, um, I'm super uh, uh, super enthusiastic about cycling. Uh, so I uh, do a lot of road cycling and a small amount of uh, mountain biking and, uh, and and fat biking off road. But uh, yeah, going off for uh, you know uh, short sharp rides in the morning before work starts or long grinding rides on the weekend are uh, uh, part of the way I stay stay sane. Yeah, uh, I, I I don't get as uh, that many opportunities to to leave my house because uh, 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 yeah, no, I've got a three year old, a one year old, and a and and another one that's going to be one in December. So uh, if I, if I, uh, if I turn on the TV, if I sit down or whatever, my wife gives me a look as if I'm swiping right on Tinder. It's the same thing. Like I, yeah. I, I have to, <laughs> I have to, <laughs> I have you to, you, you are in the very labor intensive phase of, uh, of, of parenting. And uh, I'm finding myself on the, uh, you know, just, uh, you know, really out, out of that game right now. And uh, now what you're, you're trying to do is mostly uh, be available for when they do choose to engage uh, and just try to sort of set the right kind of uh, guardrails so they don't go too far off the road and the, uh, the right kind of expectations so that they're pushing themselves to, uh, you know, figure out what, uh, what's going to make them tick in life. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to lie. When you said you're shipping your daughter off, I was like, oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Just... <laughs> so, yeah, is there, is there anything else you want to you kind of share, talk about? Yeah, I mean, I guess I'd say I'm a, I'm a big believer in the importance of organizational culture um, and cult culture in general, um, yeah, com company culture. 
Yeah, there's that uh, old saying attributed to Peter Drucker about, you know, culture eats strategy for breakfast. Um, and I'm not sure that's totally true. I, mean, I think strategy is, uh, is, is super important. Uh, but I do believe culture is sort of equally, if not more important than strategy. Um, and, uh, you know, without uh, a set of values that you live, uh, live by every day and that you actively root out examples of behavior that run contrary to those values, um, you're not going to have a, uh, an organizational culture that sustains both the, the organization and individuals through hard times, which any company is inevitably going to run through. So, you know, being very deliberate about building uh, a culture, uh, about sort of making sure that those values are modeled and celebrated and rewarded um, is something uh, that I care, care a lot about. Um, you know, as I said, every company is going to go through rough times. And I think one of the things that sustain people um, through those rough times is having a, a culture that um, uh, is, is positive and, and differentiates it from other, other places they could go off and work at tomorrow. Building and you know, enhancing a, a culture is something that is hard to do at the best of times. And it's really hard to do uh, without being face to face and shoulder to shoulder uh, with your with your coworkers. Yeah, I think uh, Zoom and other um, yeah, other things that have enabled remote work are super productive, and there's a lot of lot of uh, you know really promising uh, upsides from them. But I think it's also, and I think they're they're probably fine for sustaining a culture. But I think it's really hard to build and change a culture um, without some of that in-person contact thrown into the mix. So, yeah, I just got back from a week over in the Netherlands with the team over there. Uh, it was great to be face to face, you know, in a conference room uh, with the uh, fully vaccinated management team, uh, work working on stuff. Uh, and I'm, um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited about um, you know us getting through this uh, this this what is hopefully a uh, a final surge um, and uh, getting back to spending time face to face with uh, with our other coworkers, particularly as we start to build scale here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, no, it's going to be. Uh, I'm I'm about ready to uh, get out of my uh, basement and uh, uh, and do a bit more traveling. I actually I enjoy the odd business trip anyway, even if it's to like random cities. You know, a lot of my, uh, I, I mean, I, I've been I've been in the U.S. now almost eight years. I actually haven't left the U.S. in almost seven years, uh, but it's actually been nice because um, I, before living here, I'd only visited California, Texas, Florida, and New York. Uh, but having lived here now, there's just so much diversity in this entire country. You could go to Denver, you can go to Portland both in Oregon as you know wherever right and and there's there's a lot to see and discover I find just in this one country I yeah mean, no it's it's an amazing country to, to live in um, and uh, so so many so many so many great things about it uh, some 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 unusual and sort of uh, crazy and deeply dysfunctional things uh, in this day and age too but yeah, well, I mean, for people who are interested in both startups and culture, uh, maybe we can take it out with a couple of book recommendations here. Um, yeah, I, I recently read uh, Ben Horowitz's um, The Hard Thing About Hard Things uh, and thought that was fantastic, um, sort of a great uh, firsthand account about what it's like to be a CEO uh, and living through multiple near-death experiences as you build a startup. Uh, and I was uh, sort of so, so compelled by that that I read uh, another of his books. Um, uh, I think the title was uh, uh, What You Do Is Who You Are, um, really an organized, uh, a book about, uh, about, about culture. Um, and um, you know, for people who are interested uh, both in startup life 
uh, and in uh, sort of understanding the importance of uh, that culture can play and how to actively you know build the one that you want for your organization. Uh, those are two great books that are are well worth the uh, the read or the listen if that's your uh, way of consuming books. I tell you what we'll do. We'll put uh, we'll put links to that in the uh, transcript, which will be uh, posted. Uh, on stackstate.com so if you guys are interested in uh, uh, reading or grabbing the audible version of those books um, more than happy to do it i i actually started reading a different uh, this one this one's more uh for my my kids at my my stage but it's called the family firm by oster yeah it's it's it, it basically uh uh, it's a data-driven guide to better decision-making in the early school years. It's basically an economist running their family like a business uh, through the early years of school. So uh, so I, I just thought it was interesting to kind of read that. Uh, i tell you, about, yeah, yeah. so if we're uh, uh, sort of closing out with sort of like uh, parenting frameworks here, uh, one of the most uh, insightful things I saw, uh, and I wish I could remember exactly who the author was, but... Uh, I went to a lecture um, by an author of uh, um, sort of kid psychology books, and the framework that he put up um, has has always stuck with me, uh, that there are sort of uh, parenting styles. uh, If you sort of plot them out on two dimension, there is sort of one dimension. Think of it as sort of the expectations that you have for your kids, sort of are they high expectations or low expectations? And then there's the degree of control that you try and exert over your kids, high or low. Uh, and yeah, his assertion, uh, presumably uh, backed up by data, although I can't cite what it was now, his assertion was is that uh, you know, the parents who have high expectations but relatively low control over the kids are the ones who end up having kids who uh, sort of find for themselves in life what it is that they're really excited about um, and uh, sort of avoid a lot of the pitfalls that, uh, that, that, that many, many, many kids get uh, sucked into as, as they're growing up. The sort of low expectations and high control or the you know high expectations and high control had a bunch of sort of toxic byproducts associated with them. But the, the high expectations and sort of low to moderate control of um, as far as parenting style goes, seemed like it was the winning formula. Oh, you, should, uh, you should come talk to my wife. I'm always telling her to <laughs> let go. <laughs> I'll, 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 let you, I'll let you share that framework with her. How about that? okay okay uh i might be out of work for the next couple of weeks but (laughs) it's been great working with you anthony (laughs) but yeah no thanks thanks again uh and thanks for the recommendations and and thanks for the 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 parenting framework thought at the end there um yeah any anybody wants any information around toffer feel free to reach out on linkedin or uh if you uh, guys want to contact us uh, for more information you can always go through uh, stackstate.com um more than happy to to share any uh, kind of insights and obviously we'll have more people that we'll be interviewing uh both inside and outside of stackstate in the coming weeks terrific awesome thanks toffer enjoy the rest of your day Thanks, Anthony. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like more information about StackState, you can visit stackstate.com. That's S-T-A-C-K-S-T-A-T-E.com. And you can also find a written transcript of this episode on our website. So if you prefer to read through what they've said, definitely head over there. And also make sure to subscribe if you'd like to receive a notification whenever we launch a new episode. So until next time. Thank you.